On today's episode, I'll dig into the Lindor trade and tell you which shortstops I like more than him, plus interviews with three, count them, three reporters. That's today on Fastball Fantasy Baseball. I'm Taylor Tarter, and this is Fastball Fantasy Baseball. Let's get into it. There have been two significant signings in the last week. Kyle Schwarber was signed by the Nationals and Liam Hendricks was signed by the White Sox. So I'll cover those on next week's episode. Today's focus is going to be on the deal the Mets made to acquire both Carlos Carrasco and Francisco Lindor from the Cleveland baseball team. With the deal, the Mets become one of the top teams in baseball, and I doubt they're done yet. They probably still need one more solid starter in their rotation, So what's the fantasy impact of the deal that they made? For Carlos Carlos Carrasco, I think it's a bit of a wash. He's definitely going to a more pitcher-friendly home ballpark, and it's nice that he keeps an extremely good defensive shortstop with him in the move. But I think the move to a more competitive division kind of balances out the difference that the ballpark makes for him. Uh, Carrasco was impressive last season, finishing with 10 strikeouts per nine, a 2.91 ERA, while stranding 85% of runners on base. Advanced analytics, however, suggest his ERA could have been between half a run to a run higher, worse. So let's look at why that is. He walked almost four batters per nine innings. His BABIP was lower than usual, which a low BABIP for a pitcher means that they're getting lucky. And what helped him immensely was having a talented defense behind him. On Fangraphs.com, if you look at FIP and XFIP, those metrics focus only on what a pitcher does, independent of his defense. The fact that those metrics show an ERA higher than what he ended up with concerns me a little bit. On the other hand, between 2015 and 2018, Carrasco developed into an excellent pitcher. He could have been rated even higher in 2020 had his team scored some runs for him down the stretch and earned him a few more wins. Uh, I think statistically, you're, the move doesn't affect his um, output too much. I think you're looking at maybe a mid-three ERA pitcher in 2021 who's going to get you you know, a good, a good amount of wins, 15 wins, quality starts. You know, he'll probably finish close to that 180 strikeout range if he's healthy all year. So to me, there is a little bit of obvious health risk. Uh, it does scare me a bit that his FIP, XFIP, and Sierra, which are all advanced ERA metrics, suggest that he was much more average than he showed in 2020. But I think he's easily a top 20, 25 pitcher going into the season. He could work his way into the top 15 or even 10 by the end of the season. I definitely think he's worth drafting and worth drafting early, uh, but he's not going to be the number one pitcher on my team. As for Lindor, he'll likely either lead off or bat second in the lineup. Presumably, he'll hit ahead of Pete Alonso, J.D. Davis, Michael Conforto. I think Lindor in the lineup helps everyone else more than it actually helps him. All the guys he hits behind are going to get better pitches to hit, and they all likely see a slight boost to RBI numbers. Lindor is definitely in more of a pitcher's park now, which I think might have a slight impact on his home run output. I think he goes from maybe a 35 home run guy on on the higher end 
to now maybe kind of capped around that 28 to 30 home runs. Um, but obviously he can prove me wrong. Uh, he still, uh, you know, obviously possesses good speed on the base paths. He was on pace for 18 steals uh, in 2020. He had a major dip in hard contact last season. And uh, his home run to fly ball rate dipped a couple percentage points, uh, which looks like it affected his batting average. So he has to improve those things playing in a, pitch, a pitcher's park like City Field this season in order to be valued as, you know, a top 25 overall player like a lot of people see him as. And, you know, he has to improve on those things to be ranked ahead of guys like Trevor Story and Trey Turner at shortstop. For me, I value Turner and Story's power speed batting average combo more than what Lindor gives since over the last couple of years, he's kind of sold out for power at the expense of batting average. But after those two, I think he's, you know, right there with Tatis, you know, in a kind of a toss up for the top three shortstops. He'll probably be drafted before the end of the second round in most leagues. My expectation is for him to rate the things he struggled with last season, get some better hard contact. You know, I expect we'll see some positive regression to his home run fly ball rate. And so we'll see a resurgence in his batting average. I think you're looking at a pretty typical Francisco Lindor stat line in, in 2021. That 270 to 280 batting range, uh, batting average range, um, you know, 28 home runs, 20-ish steals, you know, and he'll fill up the rest of the categories as well. I also think uh, this deal hurts guys like Fran Reyes and Jose Ramirez, his former teammates in Cleveland, you know, they're bound to lose some counting stats, some production. Um, so kind of keep an eye on that. And and also watch and see if Cleveland sends them away in a deal too. Now they're on more kind of team-friendly contracts. So Cleveland might hang on to them. But, um, you know, keep an eye. You never know. In a moment, I will share my interviews with Red Sox reporter Jen McCaffrey, Blue Jays reporter Laura Armstrong, and Nats reporter Jesse Doherty right after a word from my sponsor. Joining me today is Jen McCaffrey, who covers the Red Sox for The Athletic. Jen, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me. So the Red Sox have been very quiet this offseason, with the biggest moves being the signings of Matt Andrees and Hunter Renfro. How do you see those guys' role is shaping up for 2021. Yeah, so uh, Andres is supposed to, um, you know, we talked to him at the in mid-December when he signed, and it sounds like he's supposed to um, sort of compete for at least some um, starting starting role. Um, obviously, the Red Sox have holes in their rotation, and they're going to need, you know, to sign a more bona fide starting pitcher or maybe a more, um, you know, traditional pitcher but Andres has kind of the experience of doing both starting and relieving um so the chief baseball officer Heim Bloom had mentioned they just want depth in general um ability for guys to you know plug holes and and um eat up innings and Andres seems kind of um to fit that role um so I think that he'll you know be a decent you'll see his seem around a lot this year um and you know I think that there'll be other guys added into the mix in the coming month or month or two months before spring training starts. But, um, you know, I, I figure that he'll he'll definitely get some some action for sure. And then Hunter Renfro, 
um, is, you know, a bat that they wanted to, you know, add to the outfield. They're, they're still, you know, it sounds like they're still searching for a um, true center fielder. Renfro's more of kind of like a corner guy. Um, and obviously Jackie Bradley Jr. is still out there on the free agent market and they've been in talks with him, um, but things are obviously moving slowly. So Renfro just will kind of add more power to their lineup. Um, you know, he's a power hitter, um, you know, a, a guy that's um, you can kind of count on for like 25 homers a year. Um, I think he had that a line like that, um, you know, for like three straight years, if I remember correctly. Um, and yeah, when we talked to him, he just kind of uh, was saying he's he's looking at looking forward to kind of being in the mix there. Um, not necessarily being a platoon player. I think that they're they're kind of gonna mix mix and match guys um, a lot throughout the season, and and not strictly just um, you know in in strict platoon um, situations. So I think it really does depend on who they end up who like who else they end up adding the roster in terms of outfielders um but bloom did say that you know there's room to add another outfielder so i don't think that'll just be uh renfro renfro verdugo and benintendi going forward i think they'll add somebody else there too gotcha and so kind of on the pitching side you said you know that there's some some open spots there there's some depth needed with chris sale and eduardo rodriguez coming back to the rotation that certainly helps the depth issue that they faced last season. Do you see them adding more pieces there? I think you wrote recently that they've been linked to Kluber. Yeah, so I definitely think they're going to be adding pieces. They're optimistic that Rodriguez is going to be able to you know, come back full strength and coming off the myocarditis side effect he had from uh, the COVID-19 diagnosis last year. Um, so, but they're, they're optimistic that he's going to be able to come back strong and, and healthy. And he's kind of had a pretty regular off season that we can tell from so far. Um, but uh, sales not going to be ready until at least July. Uh, so they're, they're definitely going to need at least, you know, one starter there. They've been tied to um, guys like Jake Odorizzi, they've had a lot of interest in. Um, yeah, we mentioned Kluber. Kluber's got a workout um, January 13th in Florida. Um, the Red Sox are um, supposed to be there. A bunch of teams are interested, obviously, in Kluber, um, and who wouldn't be? Um, he's obviously coming off some, you know, injury issues the past couple of years, but a two-time mm-hmm. Cy Young Award winner um, is definitely someone you want to take a look at. So there'll be competition there, and um, you know, they were the Red Sox were um, reportedly interested in the Japanese starter Tomoyaki uh, Sugano, but he decided to stay uh, stay in Japan this year. So they're they're kind of out on him, but they've also been tied to you know Rich Hill as well. Um, so there's still options out there. Um, a lot of guys still out there, and I I definitely think they'll they'll try to sign one of those guys um, just to kind of solidify the rotation more. Uh, so kind of staying with the pitchers, does Tanner Houck start the season in the majors? And, you know, what what's your expectation for him this season, whether he does or does not? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, in an ideal world, I think they'd like to start him in AAA just to kind of have that buffer and not necessarily need to rely on, you know, a, a rookie starter. He had those three terrific starts at the end of um 20 uh, or 2020. Um, but I think, you know, reading between the lines from what Bloom said, um, it, it sounds like they'd like to kind of have enough pitching where they don't need to, you know, be relying on, on how can even Nick Pavetta every fifth day, um, if they could start those two guys in AAA and then kind of call them up, um, you know, at, on, on their own, you know, timetable on their own, like on the Red Sox, you know, timetable versus like needing them to pitch on day one. Um, I think that'd be ideal. Um, 
but again, we don't really know exactly who they're going to be signing. And it also, I think, you know, will depend on, on what happens in spring training um, and, and kind of how things play, play out. If, if, you know, how goes out there and, you know, pitches five times and doesn't give up a hit and, you know, strikes out, you know, six or seven batters every outing. I mean, I think that they'd be forced to push him into the rotation, but he could, um, could pick himself into a rotation spot. Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think there's definitely that opportunity. Um, and I just think that they'd like to have, you know, the flexibility of being able to, to say, Hey, well, maybe we'll give you a month in trip in AAA first before, um, you know, easing you back into the majors. So, um, yeah, I think that one's kind of, uh, kind of uh, remains to be seen. Do you think that the Red Sox closer is on the team right now? And if so, who is it? Again, another question mark. I mean, we have so many question marks in the season. You know, spring training is supposed to start in about a month and a half. Um, right. I don't think so. You know, I do think that they'll, um, you know, g- uh, go out and get someone. They ha- like, we, like you said, have, they haven't really spent much money this winter, and they still have about, like, $50 million before they hit the luxury tax uh, threshold. So, I mean, obviously they have a lot of holes and I keep saying they need to sign this guy and that guy. Um, but I think if they're smart with their money, they could they could get all these guys. And I, I don't think they're going to go out and sign a closer for like, you know, $15 million a year. They could get a decent guy, um, even like a guy like Alex Colome. They've been tied to him um, and he's projected for like, you know, a one year, six million type, do- type deal. Um, that would be someone I could see that they, you know, um, could slot in there. Um, you know, Darwin's and Hernandez is, is a guy that they've had on the team the past couple of years, but he's kind of had some starts and stops. He also had COVID last year and, right. you know, missed some time. And then the year before he kind of came up halfway through. So we haven't really seen a full season from him, but there's potential there for him to close. And again, they have Matt Barnes, I guess, you know, if the season started today, um, he'd be their closer. Um, and he can close, but I think that they'd rather have him in kind of the eighth inning setup role because he's flourished in that role before. And so kind of switching over to hitting, uh, Michael Chavez had a rough 2020, as did uh, quite a few Red Sox players. What's the team looking to do with him in 2021? Does he get the opportunity to start at second? Is he platooning? Do they pair him with like a free agent like Kike Hernandez? Do you think he bounces back any? Yeah, yeah. So he's he's an interesting one. I mean, he's had these starts and stops in, in his career too, and you know, started off really hot, but really hasn't done much, you know, over the past year or so. And obviously last year was really tough for a number of reasons on guys. Um, but I think he'll be in the mix at second base. There's a lot of guys that they kind of have on the team right now. They, you know, Christian Arroyo. Um, you know, as, as a guy that they really liked at the end of the year. Um, and, you know, I could see him kind of being in the mix there, um, Chavis and Arroyo um, at that that position. Um, but I think he really needs to take a step forward this year with the bat um, in order to kind of like uh, just um, carve out his own role on the team because he kind of has just been floating between, you know, first base, second base. He's obviously mm-hmm. played third in the past. Um, they wanted to kind of get him some outfield reps. So once you start doing that with the guy, you kind of, start to wonder does he really have an actual role on this team um is he more of a bench player so yeah this is going to be an important year for him in terms of you know figuring that out and another talented young hitter is Bobby Dahlbeck is he the starting first baseman going into the season yeah you know I think that's the the consensus right now um he had a, a you know a 
a, a solid outing last year, you know, solid debut last year. And obviously the strikeouts are an issue and something he's going to have to work on, but so showed tremendous power. Um, we saw a lot of those impressive home runs that he hit. So, I mean, he's going to need to work on cutting down the strikeouts and obviously, you know, counteracting, you know, what, what pitchers have learned about him and, and just that whole progression of, of what it's like to kind of enter your second, second season. Um, and he's, he's still considered a rookie. So, I mean, he, he, um, he'll have that kind of, you know, that he's working towards as well. So, yeah, I think um, he's, he's definitely someone that's, uh, you know, going to be their starting first baseman, but yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they, one of these guys, they end up signing that has, you know, first base reps kind of helps him out in that sense of sort of a backup mm-hmm. guy. Cause they don't, aside from Chavis, they don't really have too, too many options uh, as a backup first baseman. And then you, you kind of already mentioned this one of the, one of the big holes for the Red Sox to fill is center field. And you you mentioned Jackie Bradley jr. Could end up back with the team. Uh, is there anybody else that, you know of that's on the Red Sox shortlist for for that spot in in uh, the outfield. Yeah, I mean Jackie's name kind of has been the main one. That's this. I know you mentioned TK Hernandez a little bit there, and he's someone that's kind of would be an interesting fit for them because he does have so much um, experience everywhere really but mainly in in center and second and that's where two red Red Sox holes really are or at least places they could shore up a little bit they have those guys I mentioned at second but Hernandez obviously um would be you know a little bit stronger than both of those guys um and and you know on the days he's not playing there could play center type thing in in mix and match like I mentioned before with Renfro and Benintendi and Verdugo so I mean they they could do something like that where they're just kind of um you know shuffling guys around I don't know if that necessarily would be ideal um but uh but I think right now Bradley's probably I would say the number one target for them at center um if he doesn't yeah if they don't end up signing him I'm not exactly sure what they do there are some other guys out there but there's a big drop off I think after Bradley yeah. And, and uh, so my last question for you today is about a few of the team's top prospects. I'd just like to kind of get your take on them. Um, if you think I'm missing anybody who we might see this season um, and, and whether or not you think we see these guys in 2021, what, what we can expect from them, that sort of thing. So um, the, the three kind of big ones that come to mind for me are Jeter Downs, Jay Groom and Jaron Duran. Yeah, so uh, I'll start with Duran. Duran um, played uh, winter ball in Puerto Rico um, this, you know, actually in December. So this past month or, you know, past uh, past six weeks or so, he was down there um, and uh, played for a team that was, you know, coached by uh, Ramon Vasquez, who's a Red Sox coach and played for the team that, that uh, Alex Cor- in Alex Cor's hometown. So, I mean, there was a lot, um, a lot of signs pointing towards them you know uh, wanting him to be around Red Sox people and kind of pushing him a little bit more um, to to develop a little bit more he had a really good summer at the alternate site um, in Pawtucket he hit like eight home runs and you know not necessarily you know a power hitter entering this year Um, so really worked on changing his swing and and, um, you know developed into a, a pretty you know top flight outfield prospect for them and so you have to wonder if they don't end up signing someone um you know for the outfields if they do try to sign someone like a Kike Hernandez to sort of fill fill spots maybe that's an indicator that they you know want to bring up Duran sooner I could see Duran you know um 
debuting at some point this summer. I'm not sure he's ready right now, you know, right at the outset. I think he could still use some time Mm -hmm. at AAA, especially because he only really, he didn't really have, you know, a season last year at the alternate state, obviously. Um, So he, he, I could envision over the summer and probably out of those three is, is the first that would debut. Groom just needs innings. I mean, he had the Tommy John surgery, you know, he's only pitched 60 professional innings since he was drafted because of all these injuries. Um, and they really like what he has. Obviously they added him to the 40 man roster to say, to protect him in the rule five draft this winter. But, um, but yeah, he just needs innings. And so he's going to, he's going to need time to, to develop and probably start out in single a, um, you know, bump up to double a mid season could see, you know, a progression like that, but you know, I don't think he's, uh, it's a slim chance that he would, you know, see the majors this year. And Downs, gotcha. um, yeah, he he's another obviously the top prospect in their system right now, really. Um, and interesting, you know, we again talking about a, a hole that they have on the major league roster at second base. Um, I don't think they want to sign anybody too long term at second because they know they have Downs in the system. Um, it's possible he could see time at the very end of the season, but I think he's more of a 2022 projection. Um, again, a guy that didn't get to play at all last year and, you know, was down at the alternate site and, and did fine, uh, did fine there. But, you know, that's not really game competition, you know, didn't really sit. They tried to simulate game competition, but it wasn't, you know, wasn't uh actual games so um i think they want to see what he can do probably at the double a level first um and, and kind of go from there that's where he ended you know the 2019 season i guess i guess it was um and so uh so yeah um that's kind of where those those three stand right now all right jen well thank you very much for sharing your time and insight with me i really appreciate sure it Sure thing take care and all happy right, new year Next up is Laura Armstrong, who covers the Blue Jays for the Toronto Star. Laura, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So the Blue Jays have a ton of talent on the hitting side, which I'd like to ask you about in a minute, but it seems like they're in need of some pitching depth. And the Jays have been linked to a handful of pitchers, Sagano, before he um, stayed in Japan. And they were apparently, uh, I think you wrote, that they were in on the trade that would have netted them Carrasco. Do you, do you think they go after Bauer? Do you think they target some of the guys in like the next tier down? It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the Jays. I think that what has happened, a lot of the conversations so far this offseason, even though the Jays sort of went into the offseason say, saying that starting pitching was still a priority, something that they've been saying for years really at this point, mm-hmm. um, they, they really have been linked to a lot of position players, right? And it sort of feels as though maybe the starting pitching, you know, doesn't necessarily have um, the, the, the big free agent names tied to it, doesn't necessarily have the Jays always linked with Trevor Bauer. And so uh, it's not so shiny. So we're not talking about it as much, but there are certainly holes in the rotation. I think Sagana was a big loss for the Jays. And, you know, we didn't talk about it that much because it all sort of happened in the midst of the Lindor trade, right? So 
that right. sort of grabbed the headlines. Um, but the Jays do certainly have holes in their rotation. There are guys, of course, Hunjin Ryu is going to be their ace. Tanner Rourke is still around. Nate Pearson, you know, what the, what is this season going to look like for him? You expect he'll be in the rotation, but he's really going to be sort of in his first season. Uh, so you want maybe a number two guy or a number three guy or even, you know, maybe a Trevor Bauer um, sort of ace guy. I think that at this point you're more likely to see them sort of dip into that second tier um, of free agent pitcher. I think that, um, you know, guys of the level of a Jake Odorizzi maybe um, would be a guy that the Jays will look at um, because I think that they maybe want to make their, you know, impact buy or buys elsewhere. Uh, but it's certainly going to be something uh, that they need to talk about. And, you know, at, you're looking sort of at your watch and you're thinking we're about a month away from, from um, the season or spring training starting. So when is this going to happen? How are you going to fill these holes? Uh, but it's definitely something that I don't think is being talked about enough because it's certainly sort of a glaring issue, I think, for the Jays if they want to compete at the level um, that, that they sort of say they do. And there's a, kind of sticking with pitching. There's a bunch of, of a, a lot of bullpen arms listed on the team's depth chart. <laughs> uh, is out of all of those guys, is the closer on the team right now? And if so, who gets the who gets the nod? Uh, I think that the closer that you're looking at right now is Jordan Romano. Um, I mean, I think that he's the guy that the Jays have sort of tipped as the closer of the future. They were really happy uh, with his performances last year. And I think that um, they're, they're sort of tipping him to be that next guy. I don't necessarily think that that doesn't mean that the Blue Jays are going to keep from investing in their bullpen. One thing that was sort of interesting that general manager Ross Atkins said earlier uh, this offseason was that, you know, they might be um, ready to sort of start spending money on their bullpen. I know there were reports that Liam Hendricks was um, at the Blue Jays, checking out the Blue Jays spring training complex. So maybe they're looking at a guy like that. I mean, the Jays have done a pretty decent job in recent years of sort of cobbling together bullpens. Um, but I think that that really sort of fell off towards the end of last season and they really need um to sort of maybe make a little bit more of an investment there. But for now, um, the guy who you're looking at is definitely, I think, Jordan Romano. The Jays are really happy uh, with what he did. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting about all of these, you know, sort of young Jays players is that I think they benefited to an extent from the 60-game season last year. There weren't the ups and downs that you maybe normally have to navigate um, in a a Jays full length or full like MLB season. So it'll be interesting to see how that works for a guy like Jordan Romano, who we had seen previously lose some of his velo um, as he sort of spent more time in the major leagues. We didn't see that, uh, you know, in the 60 game schedule, but how is he going to sort of take care of his arm to make sure that doesn't happen, particularly when he's pitching in high leverage situations. So uh, he's the guy for now. I, I would not be surprised if the Jays, brought in, uh, you know, another bullpen arm, you know, late innings, high leverage guy. Um, but that being said, just like sort of the starting pitching, it's like the clock is starting to tick down and, and the offseason, you know, we're expecting it'll probably have to speed up in terms of trades and free agency sometime soon. But the Jays are going to have to make sure that they sort of have their irons in every fire if they want to bring right. in a certain number of players, uh, you know, before spring training. And so you kind of, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the 
the kind of clutter but is around the Blue Jays looking at like position players um, who have what's like the the rumor mill surrounding the the Blue Jays and the like what what kind of position players are they going after at what positions yeah I think that you know one of the the things that Ross Atkins has said so far this season is that you know they want to bring in impact players and the guys that they think the positions that they think will have the biggest impact are sort of a you know up up the middle right so a particularly a shortstop, potentially, you know, also a center fielder, potentially a second baseman. So I think that that's why you're seeing a lot of links to a guy like George Springer. You're seeing a lot of links or potential links to a guy like DJ LeMayhew. I mean, it was interesting, you know, January 11th today, you know, rumors over the weekend coming out that DJ LeMayhew is maybe, you know, not so happy with how the Yankees are still playing him. So does that Mm -hmm. make him more of an option for the Blue Jays? Potentially. I mean, one of the things about the Blue Jays that I think makes George Springer a more um, seamless option is the fact that they have Bo Bichette at that position playing role, right? And he is one of their better younger players. So do you want to move him to get a guy like DJ LeMayhew? I mean, you listen to Bo Bichette talking to Ross Stripling on on his uh, podcast and you think Bo Bichette wouldn't mind having DJ LeMayhew um, there. And I think that, you know, you might just have to shuffle to get another good hitter in your lineup because I really think that the Jays not only need you know, better defense, but they certainly need another impact bat in the lineup. And LeMay, he might bring that. Um, but I do think that because center field is more of an apparent hole for the Jays, because they don't really have an out and out center fielder um, right now, um, who's going to hit and who's going to, you know, have, you know, average or above average defense. Um, that's why sort of George Springer seems like the biggest target for the Jays, but certainly the Jays are not the only team in the market right. for George Springer. So they have to sort of keep their options open, which I think has really been a tenant of this Blue Jays season is the fact that there are a lot of avenues they can take. It does feel like some of them are starting to close on them, you know, certainly with Lindor, you know, now at the Mets with Sagano, not, uh, not staying in MLB it feels like some of the doors are starting to shut, which makes some of the other sort of avenues more important, but there are still multiple avenues that exist for Toronto right now. And you kind of along. So if, if the team, I just find it interesting that the team is looking at like short stops, like Lindor (laughs) with, you know, when they have kind of young talent with Bichette, but um, you know, you wrote recently about, if Vlad, let's say, plays third base, <laughs> that makes the team more flexible. And and I kind of find it interesting how flexible the Blue Jays are defensively. And so with regarding Vlad playing third base, mm-hmm. do you see him there in 2021? And, and if so, then what does first base look like? And and do you think this is the year where the hype meets the production for, for Vlad Jr.? it's a it's an interesting question I don't think that Vlad will be at third base consistently I don't think that he's going to be playing 162 games at third base I mean he didn't even play 162 games at third base in his first season coming up now he didn't come up till later in April and he was it was his first season so I think that they were 
you know, taking some time with him. I think that he will have more of an opportunity at third base than he had last year because the Jays sort of said, we're going to, we're going to transition him to first base this year. And now they're saying, we're not going to close the door on third base. Well, he certainly looks like he's putting in the work um, to, to sort of be that player that we've all expected him to be. I think that one of the things that Vlad has had to learn since he broke into the big leagues is that, you know, maybe in um, the minor leagues, he was able to sort of get by on his natural talent Mm -hmm. because he has it in abundance, but in the major league season is just a different animal altogether. And he really needs to sort of keep his conditioning up to keep his level of play up. So it seems like he's doing that. I mean, that's from afar, right? We're just seeing, that from you know his social media we're hearing that from Rossack and Charlie Montoyo Vlad is sort of suggesting himself he says he's lost a bunch of weight since the beginning of last season and and more since since the offseason so that's that's all good news does that mean that he's going to play third base on a consistent basis I don't necessarily think so I think he does have the arm um, I do think that he has good hands. I don't necessarily know that he always has the instincts that he needs. He is a fairly agile guy, even when he's a little bit bigger. Um, so I don't necessarily know that, you know, being at the hot corner is really for him, particularly when you have a guy like Kevin Biggio. I could see Kevin Biggio getting more reps at third base this year. You've also got guys in the system potentially who might make the break uh, to big leagues this year. So you look at a guy like Austin Martin or a guy like Jordan Groshans. I think that those two guys will be considerations, maybe not at the beginning of the year, but, you know, at some somewhere through the season, which could take some time away from Vlad at, um, at third base, but you know, first base is sort of still a little bit of an unknown quantity for the Jays as well. So they've definitely got um, some stuff that they need to figure out. But I do think that you know, one thing that this Jays team certainly does not lack is flexibility and versatility. And Vlad, you know, is just sort of joining guys like Cavan and Bo um, as being, and you know, a guy like Austin Martin who might might be coming up as being you know more flexible than he was before, which is certainly not a bad thing for the Jays. And speaking of Kevin and, uh, and Bo, what do you see as like the ceiling for them in a full season? Oh, I mean, I think that one thing that you really want to see from Bo is I think you do want to see some improvement on his uh, his defense. I think that he would say that that's what he wants to see as well, um, because I think that um you know, he did make some mistakes last year. You you know, it sort of sticks out particularly that, that playoff game against the Rays where he, I think, had two errors in the one game. But I think that you want to see him sort of be an above average or an average defender. And, and I don't necessarily think you saw that at all times last year, particularly if he's going to be sort of a linchpin of this team and, and play that shortstop position every day. Um, then I think that you're going to need to see more from him in the field. Um, you know, I think that it'll be interesting to see how he's able to um, keep things going at the plate. One thing that we really haven't seen from Bobachette just yet is a slump. Uh, you know, he's been injured and he's taken a little bit of time maybe to come back from injury, but we really haven't seen him slumping at the plate for any, any length of time. So I think that he's going to have to navigate that at some point mm-hmm. in 2021. And it will be interesting to see how he does. So um, Kevin is a very interesting player. I think the fact that he, I think like for the Jays, he is one of the most critical players in that team I think that you know last year you could make an argument that he was the most valuable player which is not to say that he was the best player by any means but he is a player that 
you can stick in anywhere and he is going to be able to put in a solid performance for you. I think that what you want to see from Kevin Moore, I mean, he knows how to take a walk. He's got a good, you know, a good eye at the plate, but he didn't connect as much as you want from him right. uh, last year. So I think that he needs to, you know, hit more. He needs to put the ball in play more. It's great to um, have him, have him be, you know, a, a, a guy who takes walks, but you need to see more production for, from him. Um, so that'll be interesting. And I also think that, you know, in part, the fact that he was moving around a lot into positions that maybe he didn't play that much before sort of played into the fact that he um, has had some struggles at the plate because he had a lot to think about last year. Um, so I think that you're going to see him sort of really get the, those all those different positions under his belt this year and maybe be able to focus more at the plate. So I think for Kevin, the ceiling is, you know, a guy who you can really put into any position, which he's really quite there already. Um, and then you have a guy who, you know, is a, is a solid leadoff guy um, who, you know, puts the ball in play a lot more than he did in 2020. Yeah, he's one of those really, like, interesting guys who has kind of a high strikeout, but also a really high walk rate. Yeah. And his like on base percentage is really high, but at the yeah. same time he strikes out a bunch. So Yeah, he's got to cut down on that. He's got to and it's it's very interesting because you know, he does he he goes for it and they let him go for it, which is which is good, I think. And I think they do that because he has his has that eye, but maybe he needs to refine that eye ever mm -hmm. so slightly more. And another kind of young player that broke out a little bit uh last year was Teoscar Hernandez he mm -hmm. had an ab absurd 2020 before I think it was a rib injury yeah do you think he can replicate that in 2021 or do you think he's sort of got the benefit of a small sample size it's really really interesting with Teoscar because he really has been a, a streaky player um, to this point in his career. And, and the, that's, that's really going to be the big question for Teoscar Hernandez. I mean, I think that the rib injury wouldn't have stopped him. I think if he hadn't been hurt, he would have kept going through the end of the season. And I think that that's a larger sample size than we've seen from Teoscar before. I mean, he doesn't usually even have like a half a season necessarily of sort of solid production. So I think that it's a very good step in the right direction um, do I think that he's going to come back down to earth a little bit next year? Yeah, I certainly do. I think that, you know, as you said, he was sort of out of this world, um, th this past year. And I think that his, I mean, his numbers were so much better, um, than he, you know, previously had, I mean, you look, you just look at the strikeouts and, and how he cut down on it. And even though you're looking you know, comparing a 162 game season to a 50 game season, that's how many games he played in. I mean, it's significantly lower. So I think that uh, he definitely made some strides. I don't think that he, he also certainly made some strides on defense, uh, which I think is, is really key for the Jays as well. Um, but I don't think that he's going to be able to sustain it the way that he did uh, last year. I mean, if you look at his numbers before, he was kind of a 230, 240 mm -hmm. hitter. This year he was up by 290. I could see it, him sort of being somewhere in the middle there. Gotcha. So my last question for you is in regards to some of the team's prospects. One you already mentioned, but mm -hmm. mo most of the higher ranked prospects are lower in the minors right now. But I want to get your take on if you think it's at all possible we see 
some of them this season, what we can expect from them if they get the call or if you think we see them kind of further down the road. So those players are Alec Manoa, Jordan Groshans, and Simeon Woods Richardson. Yeah, so I mean, I think that you're going to – you have a chance of seeing Jordan Groshans this year. The interesting thing about Jordan Groshans is that I also think that Jordan Groshans is a trade chip. So I don't know like that Jordan Groshans will necessarily even be with the Jays come spring training if the Jays decide to go the trade route. Now, it seems maybe less likely that they're going to go the trade route at this point because Lindor is off the board. So maybe they're more focused on free agency. Um, But I I do think that Jordan Groshans and Austin Martin, you know, they're the Jays second and third prospect at this point. And they're very similar. And I think that Austin Martin at this point is just valued slightly more than Jordan Groshans. I also think he's slightly closer to the big leagues. I think you could see both of them come up at some point this season if there's room, but they kind of serve a similar purpose. So the question will, and Austin Martin has the ability to play outfield where Jordan Groshans maybe doesn't. So I think that there's a little bit of extra versatility there that the Jays like. Um, So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if Jordan Groshans is ready and if he's being held back because there's just no room for him or if he does, you know, make it up or if he's even sort of on the roster. As for Alec Manoa and Simeon Ridge Richardson, I don't think that you see them this year. No, I mean, they're still sort of level A um, pitchers. They're the kind of guys who are getting rave reviews and have been getting rave reviews um, within the system for a very long time now and so I think that they're going to be the kind of guys that do sort of rise fairly quickly Um, but I don't think that next year makes a, a lot of sense I mean I think that there were guys who sort of got to work I think with um you know, the Jays over last season and probably didn't lose that that much in terms of the year being lost, I think that they still got their work in. So they're probably still on schedule. So maybe you start to see them, you know, towards the end of, of next year, if there's September call-ups and if the Jays want to give them a taste of the big leagues. But I think that you're probably going to have to wait till at least 2022 for them. If you look at them, they're 20 and 22. They're still really young guys. Um, And the Jays are going to be focusing, I think on transitioning a guy like Nate Pearson and making sure that that goes well this year. But I do really think that, you know, um, Simeon Woods Richardson, Alec Manoa, even Adam Kloffenstein, like those guys are going to be guys that you're really going to be looking at um, as sort of the future of Jays pitching, which is very exciting for this organization to sort of be bringing in guys, you know, from in-house um, that could potentially be rotation options. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Laura. Thank you for sharing your insight on the Blue Jays. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Also joining me today is Jesse Doherty, who covers the Nationals for the Washington Post. Thanks for joining me, Jesse. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, man. So I want to get to the Schwarber deal that you broke the news of shortly. But first, I want to get your take on last season. So 2020 seems like it turned into a little bit of a lost season for the Nets. They had a couple players opt out. They were kind of torn apart by injuries. Does management see 2021 as a year where the team can and will still be competitive? Yeah, I think it does. And I think that's evidenced in what we've seen this offseason so far, which 
isn't, you know, some grand plan um, rolled out, but it's more in line with sort of teams building within the confines of sort of these, this, this budget tightening that's happening across the year. So what that looks like now is trading two top 10 pitching prospects for Josh Bell and now signing Kyle Schwarber this past weekend, as you mentioned, uh, for one year and $10 million. And those aren't break the bank type moves. It's not like before the 19 season when the nationals went out and got Patrick Corbin, they even paid, you know, 19 million for start on the ball Sanchez that year, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still a team that believes it has the core in place, the pitching staff, the lineup, even the bullpen pieces to build around, to add to. And I think that the main focus, obviously, this offseason has been building up the middle of that order. Um, I don't really like the concept of protection. I think it's overrated, but I guess more so giving Juan Soto and Trey Turner partners in the middle, in the middle mm-hmm. of the lineup where they're not just the only guys in a given night, um, you know, sort of providing and, and revving the offense. So. Um, yes, I, I think so. And I think one, one major note for the nationals and just for the sort of the discourse I see around the team is that like, if you're going to get excited about things from last season, which were Juan Soto winning the batting title, uh, leading the league in OPS and, and then Trey Turner's breakout and Tanner Rainey's breakout, you have to get almost equally disappointed or concerned with the the minuses right like victor robles steps back and right uh and patrick corbin you know leading the league in hits allowed and just being way too hittable and uh a lot of these things and and uh, an injury for steven strasberg which is sort of flown under the radar as as a topic of concern and daniel hudson not looking so great now going right. into the second half second year of his deal so while i do think that they, they still see themselves as ready to compete and contend following that season. I think that internally there's, there's more discussion of those flaws than maybe there is externally in where people like to say, well, 2021 or 2020 rather was an aberration for that guy, but for Juan Soto, I'm really excited. You know? So I, I think that's a lot of what I see. And I, I'd like to sort of dispel that too, if, if we can, because I think that's, that's sort of choosing your own narrative. So to yeah. Speak. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of how the team's feeling, the, the middle of the lineup offensive needs with Schorber and Bell. But, you know, I, I, and you mentioned they kind of have other needs, right? The, they have, you know, they lack bullpen depth. There's some depth they need in the rotation, second catcher. Do you think we start to see those dominoes fall soon? Or is it still kind of that slow and steady um, offseason that we've seen so far? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a – mix of both I, I, this is a weird offseason for Mike Rizzo because typically we're used to seeing him having a to-do list and just being sort of shameless in the way in which he checks it off right like that Patrick Corbin deal two winters ago was what people in the organization described to me later was an overpay in the sense the Nationals overpaid to just get their guy mm-hmm. where they said you know we need a starting pitcher we're going to overpay and then that year they had I think it was around eight or nine guys signed or, or traded for by the new year. Like they were just like blazing through it. Right. It was like Suzuki and Gomes. It was, it was Adams. It was Sanchez. It was, it was Corbin. Like it was one after another, after right. another. And then Brian Dozier came right after the new year. Like every knee was sewed up basically. And except the lefty reliever, Tony Sip gets signed in like mid March. But other than that, like almost every knee is dealt with. So this year, I, I think we've seen a lot more like market reaction from the Nats. Like, I mean, perfect example, right? Like, you wait till the non-tender deadline and you get Kyle Schwarber. Like maybe a past Nats team just like, you know, is trigger happy and gets Michael Brantley in, in mid-November and you don't even know that's an option. So I think there's been a lot of market reaction from them. And I think we'll probably continue to see that. And 
what I mean there is like, I think we'll probably see them be a bit more aggressive in addressing their needs now that they're closer to filling out the roster, but I think they'll still wait for some dominoes to fall in front of them. So like last, like, I don't know when this will necessarily uh, be posted, but like Liam Hendricks was just signed by the White Sox, right. right? And like that could now lead to either the Nationals getting really involved with Alex Colome, a guy they really like, or mm-hmm. he signs two. And now all those teams in need of a righty reliever, which I think the Nationals could use, uh, start to now fall in line and, and, the, and, and the bidding war starts for sort of that next tier, right? So like it just really is a chain reaction. And I think we'll see more of that and then the Nationals aggressive within that, but not necessarily leading that charge, if that makes sense. Gotcha, yeah. Uh, so what's your take on the Schwarber signing? Presumably he ends up taking most of the bats in left field. Soto moves straight. At least that's kind of like what the expectation is among, you know, fans and, and yeah. baseball people. But how much of a bounce back do we see from Schwarber? Is this sort of an, it, this seems like a little bit of an off season strategy for, for Mike Rizzo kind of buying low on players that had a rough 2020 you know, and hoping for a bounce back rather than going for, like you said, rather than, you know, just throwing money at people. Yeah. I mean, if that, if that lowered the price on bell and that also made Schwarber one a non-tender candidate and two, just sort of more affordable within this, whatever budget they're working with, I, I, I get that. Right. Like you probably, if you're a fan or if you're sitting in that room, like you probably would love, the authorization or sort of like the where with or, or sort of the bandwidth to get someone who's more of a sure thing, so to speak. But I, I like the signing in the sense that it feels familiar to me. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is the, I, I think a misconception when a team wins the world series is that it was perfectly built. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's sort of like revisionist history that we play with ourselves. Right. It's like, well, like the 19 team was so great, you know, in every way, but like, that team had Adam Eaton in right field, um, Juan Soto in left field, who was an erroneously named uh, Gold Glove candidate that season. Yeah. Um, Howie Kendrick played second base for most of the run. Trey Turner was a below average shortstop, you know, per most of metrics. Kurt Suzuki was probably the worst fielding catcher in baseball, <laughs> catching you know two of the four guys in the rotation during the playoff run, and like they they, they stomached that because they had the lineup they wanted, right? So like I don't think this Schwarber deal and these Bell deals are that like are that different of an organizational strategy, which is to say the, probably if you rank the things they care about, and this is not, this is not ver- this is not verified. This is not sourced, but if I just, just by watching their moves, it is pitching offense, bullpen defense. Right. And like pretty clear cut. Yeah. And like, there are some teams like the Rays who would maybe say like defense is above our rotation. Right. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we see them trading away their starters now or, um, and I think the Nationals are very clear in that. And I also think, like, within that ranking, there's a wide gap between three and four. So I think, like, obviously, if you can get a guy who's great at both, but, like, had they turned around and signed Eddie Rosario, you could argue, like, they're getting a worse – a hitter with worse upside for, like, a marginally better defense, right. even if that – even if that. So I, I think, like, being very true to what you do, and in this case, that being building up the middle of this order, um, I respect that. I, I, and I think it's worked in the past. And I also think that it's, I wrote this yesterday um, for the Washington Post, I think that it's very contingent on Victor Robles reverting back to what he was or close to what he was in 19, because they're going to need him to cover a lot of ground in the outfield. Like that will really help if he's better. And if he's continues to stumble and, um, you know, regress, like that's, that's a bad thing for the organization overall. It also makes the Schwarber signing worse. And then in terms of offensive bounce back, I mean, I think they're looking at a lot of the same things they looked at with Bell, which is interesting, which is, you know, exit velocity wasn't that different. 
and also um, batting average on balls in play was, you know, it, it pointed to some bad luck. So uh, whether you believe that or not, whether you think these guys are just strike two strikeout prone and, and going to be a headache to watch all year. I mean, I understand that view as well, but I think the nationals are looking at a similar batch of numbers when they decide if these guys are, are bounce back candidates and they, and they think Kevin Long can help with some swing tweaks too, which should be really interesting. Yeah, talking about Josh Bell, he was one of those guys who's come out to say that he he was really hurt by not having in-game video. J.D. Martinez was another one. So yeah. hopefully with getting being able to have in-game video back in 2021, having Kevin Long as a hitting coach, um, hopefully we see a nice bounce back from from Josh Bell. What are your thoughts on him and what he does in 2021? Yeah, I mean, I think the video is interesting. I think guys, some guys, that's part of their routine and it really hurt them. Uh, you know, we're going to see some semblance of it back. I mean, it was that was a mix of the video room being closed entirely for COVID protocols during mm-hmm. games and also, or actually at all times, and then also sort of some of the measures the league took to respond to the Astros cheating. So uh, I think <laughs> some of that will be rolled back and um, and guys will have more video available to them during games, like you like you pointed to. So um, I don't know if that's the magic fixer bell. I mean, I think again, like the nationals hinted to having sort of the swing fix for him that they're excited about. And I'm interested to see that. I think Kevin Long has a really good track record of working with guys and, and, and getting those tweaks and seeing them through. So um, I, I liked the bells, the bell trade. I didn't think the return was that tough. I mean, I think we kind of saw a bit of Will Crow, uh, not all of him, obviously, like he has yeah. a lot of room to grow, but um, you saw what he was. And then Eddie Ann, if, if he turns into a, a stud, I mean, I think you just kind of, you know, you lick your wounds on that because yeah. I, I know Mike Rizzo hates, he's like allergic to the word window. He doesn't like the concept of title window, but uh, with, with Max Scherzer in the last year of his deal and Strasburg getting older and, and Hudson and Harris and, and, and then team control for Soto and Turner. I, I mean, I think there is an obvious sort of one to two year title window here um, for this group at the very least. And for me, uh, I, I think that I thought the best place is to upgrade your offense from a free agent candidate and uh, and trade candidate at was third base and the outfield. I didn't quite see the first base options because it's hard to gauge the trade market, right? Because you don't necessarily know who's there. So, um, you know, I knew they were in on Carlos Santana before he signed with the Royals. I thought that made sense. But turning around and getting a guy who can – probably start 140 games for you at first was, was something I didn't quite see coming. And I think uh, if, if you still improve the offense in other ways, which, which they're trying to with Schwarber and, and maybe something else, mm-hmm. like then I think that actually makes a lot of sense, even if there is some risk to it. And kind of on that topic of improving the offense, the, the team has been linked to JT Real Muto. Is he, yeah. a, is, is he a legit target for the Nets? Or is there a second catcher they like in-house to back up Jan Gomes? Yeah, I can't say... And not, not that like I know and can't say, I just can't say with confidence that he's a legitimate target or not. Like I, I obviously we know there's a history of interest and that's about as far as we know. I think the Nats have kept Rio Muto stuff really close to their chest this year. I mean, I think it behooves them not to drive up his market knowing that he'll be um, a really handsomely paid catcher when, when this is said and done. Uh, frankly, like I've been confused by his market overall, not just whether the nationals are in it um, ever since James McCann signed with the Mets and that they sort of dropped out and they were this obvious big spender for him. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it seems to me now, like, you know, it's the Phillies and maybe it's the blue Jays who have been in every single rumor, but done nothing. Yeah. And, and uh, except sign Robbie Ray, I don't want to uh, denigrate that. And, 
And yeah, and like maybe the Yankees, because they're always involved. The Astros have been named and the Nationals because of the Rizzo comments in the past. Like, but I, I don't quite see that. Um, I mean, that would re- probably require running with Eric Fendi and Joe Ross in the, in the back of your rotation and running with the bullpen you have now. And I think probably the, the latter is less scary. I think the having those two unproven guys in the fourth and five starter spots would be rough. Yeah. So uh, I, I would imagine they start to just check other boxes. But I, again, like it's really hard. A, a weird thing about covering the Nationals is like it's really hard to ever count Mike Rizzo out on things. Like, so you right. like, have to always be, and you know, that as a fan as well, like you have to always be vigilant, right? Like, because they, they could swoop in at any moment and make them the you know, 11th hour deal for a guy just because, you know, he gets the go ahead from ownership and starts driving those prices up. So it's always interesting, but I, I don't quite see it as a realistic target right now. And so in the in the fantasy baseball side of things, it's it's hard to find consistent solid closers. So I'm yeah. curious. I'm curious about the closer situation in Washington. Does Huddy close for the Nats in 2021? Is it rainy, or do you think the team's going to be in on somebody like uh, Brad Hand or or Kirby Yates or Col- uh, May, like you said? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like really is again sort of like Real Muto, and then with a little bit more reporting on recent interest, there's there's been a long line of sort of liking to um, to Colomay, but I could more likely just see guys who sort of pad the bullpen, not become feature parts of it, and uh, I I would get I hate guessing, but I would think Daniel Hudson is the closer at least to start the year. I think that. Again, he's a guy who was concerning in 2020, and, and you could point to the starting and stopping, and he had trouble sort of adjusting his body to that, but his velo was good. He just sort of wasn't, you know, didn't have the same ride on his fastball necessarily or um, wasn't spotting it as well as usual. So I I think it's him, his job to lose. I mean, I think it's, it's not long before Tanner Rainey uh, goes there. I, Dave Martinez, I mean, I think we saw in the, the playoffs two years ago that he was very inventive, but I think during the year he actually does like the rigid ninth inning guy. So he, yeah. so he, so he can plan backwards. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of variation. I think last year, even like they sort of said, we have Hudson do Harris and kind of can use anyone, but we mostly saw Daniel Hudson back there. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't, there wasn't like a ton of sort of mixing and matching in the back end. I think he likes to, to plan backwards um, and, and then build a bridge between his starter and his closer. So I, I would guess it's Hudson to start um, unless there is a deal like a guy who can. I, I don't see Kirby Yates in the cars. Uh, I don't think it's a little bit of a risk there and they have more sure thing ready. So they don't need to do that. So hand and Cole made it really interesting to me. I think they make the bullpen a lot better. If they make any bullpen a lot better, but um, I, I think this team has other bigger interests to fry first than that. And uh, Luis Garcia, he had a nice debut in 2020. Does he start the season in the majors this year? Do we see him start at AAA? And what do you expect out of him in 2021? Yeah, that's – he's kind of interesting to me. And I don't really know the answer. And I tried to get at it when we talked to Mike Rizzo and Dave Martinez in December. And they kind of were coy and said, we'll see, and yada, yada, yada. And that, to me, hinted that he – could start in the minors. Cause I think if he was a surefire major leaguer, they would just say it. Mm-hmm. And typically what the nationals like to do with their top prospects is let them get at bats. Like they don't see the value in having a top guy be on the bench when they could be getting four at bats a game in Harrisburg or Rochester now, or wherever it may be. So if you follow that logic, which has been pretty steady over the years, like Luis Garcia came up last year, cause he was going to start at second base. Like that was just, that was it. And if you follow that logic, there's not, I don't think a place for him to start this year. Right. Like, so I think, you know, you start on Castro at second and Carter, keep him at third. The, the one thing you could say 
And I don't think this is in the cards yet, but if if Kibub still looks subpar and shy, and shy at third in spring training, then maybe you see Garcia supplanting him there. But I think we're still maybe a year removed from that being a possibility. I think Kibum's leash is a little bit longer still, and he should have a chance to bounce back to this year. And, and frankly, he kind of erased a lot of the defensive questions last year and then turned them into offensive questions, which probably is better for him because that sounds like that seems more fixable for him. He's just generally been profiled as a better offensive prospect. But uh, I, I would say that's the path to the majors right now. And if not, I don't think they would carry him on the bench. Now, that could be proven wrong, of course, especially with extra bench spots. But I don't think they would do that. And so my last question for you, you kind of answered part of it already, but this is one that I'm sure every every Nats fan is wondering is what is the plan for Carter Keyboom? And yeah. do you think he's still with the team by the time spring training uh, or, or even the season rolls around? And is this the year he fulfills the, the hype as, you know, one of our top prospects? Yeah, that's interesting. Like I, so my inkling is that he will be with the team and will be playing third base because I think the ways in which you supplant him externally are Justin Turner signing, which I don't quite see happening. There are rumors he wants four years. Which I just don't think that's something that's would do. And DJ LeMay who signed to play third doesn't make a lot of sense. I think you sign somebody for the money he wants to play their primary position. And then trade candidates like Eugenio Suarez and Chris Bryant have seemed to cool off, at least in terms of the Nats being mm-hmm. connected. So I, I think he's there. Again, like maybe Castro, a, a, a possibility I didn't mention is Castro going to third and, and Garcia playing second, right? Like if Kibum really hasn't figured it out by spring and he looks rough at the plate and he's, he's fumbling around in the field, then maybe you'd do that as well, where Castro has obviously a track record of playing third. And, um, a short one, but he's done it. And uh, But I do think he's with the team to start. And I think the, a really important part of your question is will he realize his potential and the hype as a top prospect? Now, my inkling there is he's 22 and he, yes, he very well still could do that. And I think we often make the mistake, especially with top prospects who get in the public eye so early of assuming they're fully formed players at 22 Mm -hmm. right or 23 or when they come up to the majors they're a finished product where i think that's just unrealistic and some guys like i think i also kind of call it the one sort of of nationals fandom right (laughs) like i think there's like a there's a there's a propensity now to just want that immediate gratification player and which is you know it's a great spot to be in because you get to watch juan soto but it also maybe spoils you to the point where expecting a lot from other guys so i guess what i'm saying is yes i think he can still realize that but at the same time i think there could be a point where national fans may have to recalibrate what they expect and that may be sort of wiping that top prospect label from your brain and saying am i okay with a you know everyday player guy who hit six in the order solid maybe you know uh right high 700 OPS, whatever it may be like low eight like, like it's just like that might be he might not ever break the you know just start knocking the walls down like he might not ever be that player but if you get a serviceable player out of it maybe it's solid and then he turns into a trade piece or he, or he just sticks around and you build and you get your big offensive pieces at places like first base and the corner outfields and catcher potentially and middle infield or wherever it may be. Like he might just be that. And I'm interested to see in the next couple of years, if one, the Nats can stomach that because their base is typically a big offense spot for teams. 
and two, how the fan base reacts, because obviously there is that prospect label that everyone wants that will follow him for the rest of his career, right? Like he will be, that is the first line of his Wikipedia page, <laughs> like top prospect Carter Keboom did X, Y, and Z in his career. Like, it's just, that that's always, you're always that once you become it. So um, I'm interested to see how that all shakes out for sure. I don't know if I totally answered your question, but um, I think it's, he's sort of a fascinating case. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jesse, for joining me and, and sharing your insight on the Nats. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. Thank you. Take care. I want to thank all my guests again today for sharing their insight uh, with me and uh, with my listeners. And for my listeners, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're using. That way you'll be notified when each new episode is published throughout the rest of the off season and as we get into spring training and the start of the season. And as we approach spring training, I'll be doing a, a draft prep episode as well as a crash course in sabermetrics. Uh, so uh, make sure you subscribe uh, so you get notified when those episodes published. Also, please give the show a five-star rating. Each high rating moves my podcast up the list on all the podcast platforms when people search for Famous Baseball. So it's something re- that really helps me out. You can follow me on Instagram at Fastball Fantasy Baseball and on Twitter at Fastball Pod. I post there uh, as much as possible with uh, daily info and updates and up-to-the-minute uh and analysis on every offseason move. So make sure to follow me and feel free to email the show at fastballfantasybaseball@gmail.com at gmail.com with any draft questions, keeper questions, trades, whatever. Thanks for listening.